0: please do your own research nothing here is investment advice
1: berford capital today Long-term favorite. <laughs> right, there's, a, there's a joke at In Practice, which goes something along the lines of, um, if you talk to Will Barnes long enough, the conversation will end in Burford Capital. I think that joke is not only internal to In Practice, but, but may also extend to the community of dear 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 friends and colleagues that we work with. Um, what what on earth is so interesting about this business that has merited your almost unwavering attention for probably more than um, seven six or seven years?
0: Yeah, well, I would. I first came across it when actually on the credit side when they were issuing UK bonds and and was really lucky to be honest. I mean, I, I was covering the company and, and had no idea what they were doing, <laughs> what, what was going on really. I, I started, <laughs> and barely do now, but, um, they, this, I was covering it and it was a ridiculous valuation. It was like six times a book or something in 2017, 18. And, and then money waters obviously had that, had run the short story in nine, end of 2019, I think. So I was kind of live, got a front row seat in, in what was going on, and and actually in, in that just made me particularly interested. I think back back then I didn't really fully understand the business much at all, frankly, and was covering it was loosely following, but wasn't really paying too much attention. But then the, the whole money wars thing obviously was was very interesting. And and followed the, the the story and from start to finish, but actually realised how good Carson Block actually is, <laughs> and and looking back, well, even just short at, at the time, shortly after, you know, realising how well, how firstly, how good he is in terms of noticing the the opportunity, the setup, and the potential symmetry on the short side based on the public information on, on the company and and everything and the whole story and and looking back it was you know where i followed the business and read through the short report a lot of it was kind of uh bs to a certain, ex- certain extent um but when you dived into it it actually realized how perfect the short setup was for for both and how good he actually is so for example you know high growth financials is always fishy and quite tricky you know you shouldn't be growing big financial institutions fast unless you have very lax underwriting or 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 lending standards um but you had this you know high growth business new asset class trading at five to six times book complex accounting and this was the most important point which was he realized that a lot of retail investors were involved in the uk and he realized that no none of the retail investors really understood the accounting. And so if he just shed a light on 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 the accounting or the somewhat complex accounting and half shady, half um arguably somewhat misleading, he he could argue, then he knew that the retail investors would just run. And that's exactly what happened. And but it was a perfect setup for him and it just made me realise how good he actually he is. But it was a effectively a hit and run. And if you knew the business it didn't it really didn't um, impact the, the operating business much at all and was kind of the smoke and mirrors. And I think uh, afterwards it, that all played out. And I think management, it was interesting to, it was the first time I've properly followed a company throughout such a short report like that. You know, and that was a big, you know, the stock was down a ton that on the day. And, and I think Peter Trough was 75% or something and it was massively overvalued, but this was a, you know, this was a, it was a big story, so it was, I got really interested there because I realised that actually there was a lot of asymmetry, you know, on the when uh, post muddy waters and it was trading at yeah you know, three pound, even two pounds I think it got to, but three pound, you know, it was looking really interesting then, and so I kind of started to look at it and followed the management team and
1: what just just quickly on that, what did you think of the? the calibre of the response to Muddy Waters from Burford?
0: I think it was overall pretty good, but there's a lot of nuance involved. And so, well, firstly, like, I mean, I think it's interesting to just understand why it's even worth spending time on, you know, and and actually why, Once once you knew that there was potentially, this was a hit and run short and, you know, very well set up short, but nothing more than that, you know, what, what was particularly interesting about Burford, we we'll have talked about the management team in a second, but the, the management team quality, but also the characteristics of potentially the asset class. And it's a fairly new, it's a very new business, new asset class. But I think there are some unique characteristics about litigation finance that make it somewhat interesting, more interesting in some ways than other arts, but and less interesting in some ways. But now, for example, then, obviously, it's uncorrelated returns to the broader economic cycle and somewhat even, um, yeah, it, it's uncorrelated, um, but it has positive skew, which is the most important point. And that means that, you know, that that is due because of the the underlying characteristics of the fact that, for example, 66% of the time on average, these cases settle within two and a half years, three years, you know, two, two and a half typically. Um That means the binary risk is taken out of the of the case a lot of the time, you know. And because of these, because of the claimant and the defendant don't want to take that risk of a final judgment, you have the 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 majority of cases don't actually get to that point. So if you can handicap risk correctly, you you get the positive skew, you know. And 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 also you get a you know if you think about the recycling of capital. You know on average, based on again the COVID distorted this, which is part of the interesting point, but in a normal in a normal environment you have a fairly um, common rhythm of the recycling of capital. This is not V C or PE where you have a ten year lock up, seven year lock up of a fund of capital in a fund. It you know, this is a two and a half year cycle. And so sixty-six percent of the time cases settle, they earn twenty-nine 20 or 8, eight, 9% IRR on those cases without binary risk, you know? And so, um, 16% of the time they lose, they lose, um, the case when it goes to the trial, they lose a bunch of their capital then typically 60% on average. So far, again, this is not a full wipeout typically because they have seniority in the, in the capital structure. So they get back their capital first. Sometimes it's not a complete loss. And on average, they get back sixty percent of their capital when they lose sixteen percent of the time, one six. And then, obviously, the big wins get—you um, know, fifteen percent of the time they win on trial and they get a they get a they get a huge win. Um, you know that that shakes out of attractive IRRs because of the binary risk element. You know, and this is the other thing. Nothing. This is not uncommon. So, if you we were we, I remember we went back and studied these business. It's a bunch of them. Tyrium, There's longford there's many other businesses in the industry that are doing commercial litigation they all earn decent irrs 30% plus irrs there's, there's not much capital and they're not, they're not running 5 billion so historically because of the binary risk nature of these of, the, of these assets they earn they warrant also somewhat high irrs and there's also reports overall in the industry you know, that commercial claims commercial claims are 40% there's also mass tort and, and personal injury. Mass tort, I think, is twenty percent. Personal injury is thirty percent. IRRs it's slightly different. But Berfield only does commercial litigation. So basically, the, you know, long story short is that the, the the setup is is you get uncorrelated returns, positive skew, and then you get a management team which are arguably pioneered the industry. And so, if you look back, and this was interesting to see them in in real time, kind of rebutting uh, muddy waters where these are not two guys that have just spun up a bit of capital from a hedge fund and, and invest in litigation you know john is a is effectively arguably the the real pioneer of, of one of the pioneers of of, of investing in, in litigation cases and so he was a professor has written multiple papers about the asset class he's involved in the early days Consulting and investing in, in litigation via hedge funds for years. Advised the Obama administration, former lawyer himself, um, and then Chris also, um, yeah. Which some some argue that he's more promotional uh, than, than than John, and but you know this is you know he's a former litigator, at Kravath, and he's he was the youngest GC at Time Warner during the biggest merger of all time, right? And during AOL, at thirty, I think he was mid thirties. You know, he's running <laughs> running general counsel of Time Warner. Like, this is not a not everyone gets that job, right? And so, he's also invested in the Rand Time Warner ventures, which was a nine billion revenue business of Time Warner. So, this is not just um, that they both own ten percent of the equity and have a bunch more. And the, they own they own the, the public bonds and they own the, they've invested in the funds themselves. I think that estimate they've roughly a current market value they probably have like 300 million dollars skin in the game right and 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 also the 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 interesting point the asset class the management team and then obviously the questions around the 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 durability of those returns right I think the I think one question is obviously the one argument is these assets warrant some higher IRR because of the binary risk if you invest in something when you have a zero you know the center of a zero then, you know, the, 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 the IRRs don't work at, um, at lower, even for settled cases. You, you don't think it's typically going to change that much. And then I think the, the one thing we've done a lot of work, this is one thing we've explored in terms of the primary research is actually how durable are these IRRs? Like, what are they actually investing in? I think that's where you can get into detail because people think they're just investing in, in, in lawyer fees and, and it's not just that, right? They're unlocking assets of balance sheets, corporate balance sheets. They're creating, they're originating their own business. And I think one area we've tried to explore and, and kind of understand more is the obvious question, which is how durable are these IRRs? Because the first question anyone comes to is why, like every other industry, specifically finance, why doesn't capital just come in and, and, and IRRs just converge to the cost of capital? And I think that what we've tried to understand is like who is actually competing with Burford? Like who is underwriting these big antitrust claims, these big $100 million portfolios? I don't know if there's many people out there that are, they certainly don't have the balance sheet. Burford's three to four times bigger than Omni Bridgeway and and other players. So I, I don't know how certainly for the more commoditized cases a bunch of capital coming in the market and like underwriting one million dollar litigation that's that's going to be commoditized but when you're talking about 30 40 50 million hundred million 200 million cases or portfolios I just the brand the reputation the capital base the uh, uh, we're, we're trying to understand exactly who how competitive but who's actually competing with Burford
1: so let, let's spend a bit more time investigating or, or chatting about the the sequence of of the research that we've conducted over the last few years in terms of field work and in investigating you know so you've got especially on the risk side right the the persistence of IRRs the size of the market binary risk I and mean, we've spoken about a few of these things maybe a question around regulation in the space let let's. Let's talk about how you've actually sequenced field work. Well, I, I think that the, the first part was the first part was was
0: like actually how does this work, right? Which is okay, there is a company with a litigation asset. How does it even get in front of Burford? There's a whole originate there's a whole value chain origination process that comes from client and corporate client to law firm. Sometimes through brokers, but but obviously to a Burford or a funder. That's that's the historical type. So that's you know a, a large part of the business, which is poor, which is law firm has a relationship with funder, and they would you know for some for, especially for the smaller assets they put them out. You know it's basically a bit of an auction. Call it an auction where they're bidding for they want to they want to fund the case right. So the more commoditized, somewhat smaller cases are certainly going to be somewhat commoditized there's still a, probably a premium required for a funder to make their economics work because it's because of, like i said because of the binary risk but overall probably in the long run these smaller cases are going to be are going to be just you know commoditized then it's the big then it's like how the, the part of the edge the one hypothesis that i had was the edge is actually in the the brand of reputation, which comes through the origination. So in short, Burford gets better access to deals because of their brand and bigger and, and, and bigger and more complex pieces of litigation. I.e. the YPF in Argentina, like who really would underwrite Eaton, Park and Peterson to, 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 that level. And that was 10, you know, eight years ago, whatever it was. Um, you know, and just, just like the, just like for some pieces of financing, a big corporate wouldn't go to um, you know, RBC, they would only go to Goldman and, and Morgan Stanley. But even more than that, there would only be, you know, one or two options probably in this in this market now. And basically one would only be Burford. So I think it's that that brand and recognition and reputation is is part of the origination. So understanding exactly we spend a lot of time speaking to lawyers, speaking to um people that have been both clients and lawyers and the funders and understanding exactly how that origination process works. And, you know, frankly, a lot of the time we speak to funders and they're not, they're not really bidding against Burford because they don't, they don't really see the same business as Burford. Um, so that was the first part, the persistence to the IRRs. I think that was, that's a harder one to understand and you still, you know, it's, it's impossible to handicap and, and really get a grip on, but I think part of it is understand the competition, like how, what what type of cases are they underwriting? Who gets access to these? How complex is the litigation? Who has the ability to do that? I think there's very there's a lot of nuance in in the way that l- the legal work is conducted. A lot of funders outsource that legal work, so um, you know some of the some of them like you know Augusta and, and Longford and Tyrrell they will specialise in certain parts of litigation. But the other parts that come through their desk for a law firm, they will outsourced, and that that supposedly that part of the process is it can be quite competitive in terms of how you price the risk and and the effectiveness of pricing that, and how the law firm and the and the, and the client chooses. So there's a lot of kind of nuts and bolts of in this industry that's still evolving. That's the first, that's the core part of the business in terms of funding legal expenses. And The other part which doesn't get discussed enough, and I think you know. Burford could probably do a better job of this is actually explaining how they originate cases from corporate balance sheets. So there are, you know, obviously there are some corporate clients that understand they have a piece of litigation and they come to a law firm and then, you know, that, that, so they do the the litigation for them. The law firm comes to Burford. Where Burford are pioneering the, the, the asset class debt, they might spot a piece of litigation. So for example, there was a, a, um a, a big kind of cartel piece of litigation around the trucking the European truckers trucking companies where they were kind of price fixing um and Burford spotted this piece of litigation of one of, of one of one client they went and found and, and originated that piece of litigation of other corporate balance sheets um so they're, they're effectively doing their own origination and they can do this their proprietary data set and their history potentially enable them to do that more effectively and price that risk, uh, better than, than others. And if you think about it, it's, it's where it's all proprietary information and, 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 and by definition, non-public, because you can't discuss like settlements, for example, out of court settlements, you can't know how much they settle for. So think about it. Like they've got, they've got the biggest, richest, deepest data set on out of court settlements for a funder that's all, by definition, proprietary. So every piece of litigation that comes in the door, they know what the IRR of that would be based on their data set, roughly. Other funders wouldn't know. They can't price that risk. You know, and so and there's been history of them getting burnt from overpricing stuff where they haven't got the the background. So, and, and, and what's also what also becomes more interesting is imagine that you have you know a piece of litigation, like take this European cartel example, the truckers. You find one trucking company that has a piece of litigation. You you analyze the legal risk. You like the IRR and you like the opportunity. You 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 then originate similar piece of litigation. Well, you're effectively using that proprietary insight to go and to go and allocate more capital based on on, on a similar on, on somewhat of a and even when on a similar risk profile. But you have the only information in the industry. So it's almost like a PE fund, like take a PE fund. I always compare it to the other alts, right? A PE fund invests in some internet business like marketplace. Well, you know, they might see the, the business perform, but so can everyone else, you know, not perfect can do that. And, and, and so instead of the PE fund buying more internet businesses or market-based businesses and having to pay up for the price and everyone can see the performance, they get better, Burfer gets better priced on that piece of litigation because it's private and proprietary and they know, they don't want to know the risk. So there's a, there is, there is value in that proprietary data set. Again, it depends on in terms of the persistence of the IRRs. It depends on exactly who else can bid for this, for those types of cases. So figuring out, and, and again, the IRR is different between two different pieces of litigation, between those that when you're funding legal law firm fees versus whether you're funding, assets of the balance sheet. So I think that's two parts of the industry that maybe we spent a lot of time in trying to understand and there's very different. Um, but then there's, you know, back to the question around the risks and how we look to, how we will continue to explore them. I think that will always be one question. Um well, and, and I can, I'll discuss what, what what might worry me in, in a moment. But the the position of IRAs, and then yeah, the the regulation is also one thing that is probably worth exploring around. Yeah, there is a question around how the funder interacts with the law firm, and. So legally or technically they, the law firm has full independence in running the case and the client obviously, um, choosing when to you know, making decisions, but everyone kind of knows that <laughs> who holds the purse strings typically makes, you know, has, has an influence. And so there probably will be regulation at some point that comes in and, and explores um, or lays out how funders, the, the, the role funders have and the power they may have in cases that would stop them kind of, would stop them potentially um, putting too much power on claimants and, and those to, to make decisions. But I think ultimately it's not going to, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a nuclear risk because again, the funder is putting capital to work and, and needs to return that capital. And if you if you nuke too much, that you know, if you ruin that relationship, if you distort that ownership, or, or you're just going to reduce the ability for claimants to get funding for litigation, which and then ultimately the claimants are going to lose. So, but I think regulation will probably
1: come somewhere. So. Some I mean, I guess another thing that this question around market size. There's a so number of the risk factors, and I, I would point our listeners to to work in the library around a number of these factors. Right? There's there's a you know when we think about like what what is worth spending a lot of time on that, that that's you know and 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 the way in which Like, right.
0: It's a big question. I think something like this. I mean, there's a couple of things here, right? There's the, the, there's the, the, the durability of the asset class, and how long. You know, exclude the regulation for a second, but how. How persistent are the returns? How attractive are the asset? like How true is this, is this positive skew in the asset class and the uncorrelated nature of that? And how, if that plays out, how attractive is that over the next 20, 30 years? Size of the market? I'm pretty skeptical on the size of the market, frankly. Like there's no, especially, if, you know, uh, base case for me is that the, the low end of the market is somewhat commoditized, but actually the high end, call it above 20, 30 million, you know, 15, 20 million case size, there aren't, there's potentially not going to be many people that can underwrite that legal risk on the, on the balance sheet, or at least have the capability to do that and the proprietary data to do that. So I think the high end of this of legal finance is probably going to be less competitive, and you've probably got a, maybe one or two players that can actually do this. And Buffett's one of them for sure. So I think the returns are probably more more durable, especially when you're originating in those cases yourself. Um, but then again, the higher you go in terms of the size of the case, there's less of them, right? How many thirty million dollar cases are there in the in the on the planet? I have no idea, but I don't think it's put it this way. If if they got a billion, two, three billion dollars from YPF today, they couldn't allocate it this year. This is not KKR, right? So, although it doesn't have to be KKR, but I think the point here is that it's the market size is somewhat questionable. Um but again, they're also they're also creating a market, right? When you go and unlock assets on a balance sheet, take the European cartel example. Like you're effectively knocking on companies' doors and saying you've got a similar asset here that you probably don't know about and you're not gonna spend time and money and effort to unlock that that asset value, but it has it has value. So you don't actually there's no no one can know the value of that side of the like the, le- the the legal fee side. There's two there's two sides right. There's a le- financing le- law firm fees, legal fees. You can make some assumption of, you know, you chuck out people chuck out how many the dollars of the fees paid per year or whatever. Eight hundred billion, I think there is. But it, that doesn't include all, what you unlock with the balance sheet that people don't even know they have. So no one knows the, the size of the market. But I, I think it's safe to say they can't they can't deploy billions a year at least at this point um and then the, the the biggest question i have is i think well you know there's only two things that matters here right which is how much you how much capital you can deploy and uh, what are, and what's the return on equity that's that's all that really matters and i think one one thing the market doesn't like and st- you know even now is still questioning it seems is like what is the true underlying earning power of, of the business. And it's hard to see that because you have you know half of the book value is in YPF, which is you know, call it bi- it's not binary, it's what it's a one it's a complete it's a uh, the first summary judgment, right? So it's got it's got to go for the damages. But that book um half of the book value isn't actually working to generate cash right now. Like, I mean it is kind of working because it's going through the trial process, but like. The underlying returns, the cash, the realised cash returns of the last yeah few years, is half of the book. Half of the book value is not generating anything, generating unrealized gains, but no one really cares about that if you're operating the business. So, so you've got this situation where you have half of the book value is not working to generate cash today. You have a business that is scaling and building out and building globally, so it's hiring more lawyers, opening offices, seeing demand for its capital. So it's building out its cost base, deploying capital. Half its book is not earning cash flow, but it's going through the YP. You know, it's one, and it's, it still has huge value because it's you know it's a, it's effectively um, just hashing out the, the damages with, with with Argentina. But you have this. No one actually knows the what's the real return on equity. You know what's what's the true underlying ROE, to, to, so I can actually put a. So I can value the company. And that's why I think people are questioning. There will probably still be questions about this until it flows through. Until you actually see it, obviously. Until it's too late, probably. But, um, you know, I I think, yeah, that's what makes it particularly interesting right now, where people don't believe in the underlying returns of the business. And and you can go through and see, you know, if they're underwriting at 25 30% IRRs, there's a lot of, there's a lot of leakage in that, right? Because if you, you know, that's the high, that's, that's the case level. That's the case level without the, without the operating costs, you know, the, the lease of the offices, the employees that carry nine, 10% carry of the, for the companies, for the, sort of the employees of the company. So when you, when you, when you go from 30% IRRs, you, know, you don't, you're not getting crazy, crazy returns on the equity. Uh, it's not trans, it's not, not trans, kind of margin profit necessarily. Um, but but you're but you're getting solid, you know what I think normalized ROEs, um, and they're uncorrelated. So if you've got a if you've got a fifteen twenty percent uncorrelated ROE on a business that is, you know, potentially a, a a leader in in the asset in this asset class that has positive skew and all these, you know owner operators what what should that be worth you know so i think there's an interesting part now of the next year where you've got no one can really figure out the true underlying you know they're not true underlying cash returns they've got ypf hanging in the background that people spend a lot of time on um but ultimately all that matters is is what's the return on equity on the on, on the on the book value and what's the on the balance sheet and what, what, how much capital they can deploy over the next 10, 20 years.
1: What have you learned from spending time with Chris about what he deeply cares about and how he thinks about creating value? I think there's a interesting perception of Chris
0: that I think might be misplaced by some investors. Well, he can, and maybe it's worth exploring. There's, there's the history of YPF is interesting because they, if you go back and look at the, the financials of Burford from 2014, 15, 16, 17, up to, to pretty much 19, 20, when they started and they monet, they monetized YPF, so they sold. As YPF progressed with the case, Argentina tried to appeal it many times. They 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 monetized. They actually basically taken up 200 and sold part of the case, taken 230, 40 million, 50 million, maybe dollars in cash, actual hard realized cash from YPF as the case evolved through the courts. Right um, Now, so what, what happened? And, and that was, if you, there's, there's different ways to, so when the whole body waters thing come out, a lot of investors we, we spoke to, they were what, Because Burford was taking a part of the carry, because that was a realized cash, Burford, John and Chris took carry and basically paid themselves partly from that cash realization of YPF. And I think people questioned how aligned they really were with the business when Muddy Waters had happened and, and you look back and... They'd monetized this, you know, this, this case that was still unrealized and they'd taken money out of the bit that, you know, they paid themselves for a, a bit of a bonus because the YPF was doing, you know, was, they were monetizing YPF and et cetera, et cetera. So people questioned how aligned they really were. So I think it's, I think it's completely, I think they, and then maybe missed the forest for the trees there. And, um, and actually they were, Managing the capital structure quite effectively, so they didn't raise capital and dilute the equity base. They were using YPF to partly fund the business, and they used that to fund the, the growth of the of the asset management business and and also the the platform itself. Um, which I think which I think wasn't clear from 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 the from the commentary. But then, actually, beyond that, I, I think it's hard to argue that John and Chris together are not, or well, individually and also together are not competent i think the arguably that it's hard to, to argue that they're not the too much competent people in, in the whole business at least experienced and there's plenty of funders that have gone bust by the way one in the uk went bust because they mismanaged their portfolio so these guys have been doing this for forever for, 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 for a long while now and I, I think that you know what i was curious about is like what actually drives these guys you know what do they care about and I think they really care about their reputation and their legacy and then and what they're here to do and they care a lot about the industry and and they see Burford as truly a pioneer and and they are yeah I mean one thing that stood out to me was it they they see themselves as uh a leading law finance firm you know, and they see themselves in the same bracket as these big KKRs and, and, and and those types of businesses and even Goldman's, you know, that he, that they kind of look up to. So, you know, I, I think it's hard to argue they're not, they're not, they're not aligned. And yeah, I think people misunderstand or sometimes I, I do feel not feel for them but you know it's such a it, it, by definition it's a black box litigation finance because you can't share the you can't share the assets and people obviously people don't like that you know some people some investors can't deal with that they have to know you know you have to know everything and um, and so they I think what drives potentially the dynamic between John and Chris, John's very seems introverted. You don't really get access to John at all. He's, he's you know, he's managing the portfolio and underwriting the, 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 the risk. Chris is the face of the company and, and may seem to some to be promotional, but actually, yeah, he, he, I mean, if, if he didn't, yeah, it's, it's hard because it's such a complex business to understand. It's such a new asset class that if he wasn't, um they're like yin and yang you know he has to share he has to share it seems like he overshares the compensate from the for the level of complexity in the business that can can come across as highly promotional for example you know mark Leonard can sit in his in his room and and not speak to anyone and you know and i think it's obviously they the free cash flow is clear from, from consolation but you know, you can see what they own. They own own VMS businesses. You know what VMS does. You can see the software businesses. You can't see the underlying asset. You can't see the true exactly the cases. So I think there is an element of, you know, if you're, let's say for for our business, like how do you, how do you, how would you explain? He's got to raise, he's got to raise debt. He's got to raise equity, you know, to some extent. Um, He's got to raise third party capital. How do you, how do you promote? Not promote your business. It promotes the wrong word. But how do you be the face of a company that has somewhat a defined opaque asset? And you've got John, who's like you know head down underwriting risk. You know, and I think Chris maybe overcompensates for that, but, and, and they're yin and yang. But I think people look at that as as, as promotional, whether it's right or wrong. And but I think there's no question that he's not that they're both not. Uh, aligned or, or confident I think, that's, I think that's potentially not true
1: what's on your mind you know if we think about research questions that you'll be exploring for the next year through, through field work
0: here I think it's back to those questions you know like I said it's the two things that really matter it's how much capital we can deploy it and how and, and what are we you know we can look at the I think there's still lots of uh, questions around the assets there are the, the cases available, you know, and, and actually that that process of originating cases is still evolving. It's a very dynamic. It's a new market, right? So it's Burford have built out a team, origination team that they're actually going out and sourcing cases. Like I said, from corporate balance sheets. So The one question I have is, for example, if you, know, you get a blended IRR from the group level, so you've got, but that includes two types of various different cases, right? But that's cases where they're funding law um, law firm fees, legal fees, and it's cases where they originate themselves. So if this mix, I think the mix is probably like call it, let's call it fifty-fifty. Argument's sake it's slightly different, but if the mix becomes seventy-five percent, they originate themselves of balance of corporate balance sheets. Does that warrant a higher? Is that because that's is that more proprietary than coming through a law firm? It's, it seems that seems like it could be. What would be the IRR if that mix, like if that mix changed, and and how big is either, how big is is that opportunity? You know, so so exploring that origination process, who gets that, access to the best deals, and, and and that would help you understand the persistence of those IRRs or already the return on, and the return on equity. But I think it's it's funny because yeah, let's let's see let's see when that cash comes. I think that's the that's the only thing, right? It's um. Cash money. People don't believe it's there, so maybe it's too late. Don't believe it It's too late.
1: <laughs> well, and and that's it. That there's there's this cloud hanging over the business for for a number of reasons. Important among these is is the muddy waters situation, followed by YPF, right? And I think that muddy waters is gone now. I think I don't think people are well. It's it's cast a shadow, right? It is gone, and if you look into it, right, it's. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah.
0: Well, no, but it, it's still there in the fact that, I mean, Carson could argue now, well, where's the cash? You know, he could, he, 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 could, he could, he could, he could say that he could say, well, show me the free cash flow. Right. And, and, and that's true. And he has a point and that's why I think there is a, still a credible point here, which is where is the cash? And, you know, and you can say that about a lot of things, <laughs> Um, you could say about Amazon today, where's the cash? You know, where's the cash from the retail business? Obviously, they have a more of a history of, 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 of generating cash, but Burford also haven't exactly nuked their their shareholder account, raising equity to, to finance it. You know? So it's, this business has generated cash in the past and it's financed itself to, to where it is today. So it's not like it's on a perpetual equity raising scheme to to flip equity to, to, to invest, you know. So I think that, People want to see the cash flow. This should, you know, let's see if it shows itself in the next 12 to 18 months with you know, excluding YPF and with YPF, also obviously, but um, there's a couple of huge vintages in 2017, 18, 19 uh, that are coming due. So with this new cost base, the OPEX, the interest, the tax, you know, that realized cash coming from those vintages, excluding YPF, Then you get to see the true return on equity, and you can kind of you know if you you can make some assumptions now what that could be, you know, and 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 that's part of 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 the yeah part of what people people maybe don't trust, Um, but I think you can you can make some reasonable assumptions around that, and then the other risk that you mentioned is is yeah the that that's still what Carson could argue. There's also the you know the insurers don't like don't like the don't like the funders you know they don't like litigation and if you speak to any insurer they'll almost run you out the room (laughs) when you speak about litigation finance
1: don't bring burford up in a room full of markel shareholders
0: yeah well i think that yeah there's 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 a bunch of insurers and and that have written reports and, and discussed it but i think there's potentially more emotion involved here than than someone being reasonably objective, you know, and I think there's a few things people 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 conflate con- consumer and commercial litigation as well. So some of these some of the insurers have written about consumer litigation, buffer doesn't do that. But in, in pure commercial litigation, I mean, the insurers are effectively arguing that litigation funding is increasing the claims cost for them, right? So it directly hurts them, and they're arguing that okay, it's increasing the cost. But it's increasing the claims cost for us. Therefore, we've got to put our price of our insurance up. Therefore, the business loses. Therefore, the business passes that cost onto their customers. Therefore, you're hurting customers. <laughs> it's a bit of a you know, somewhat far fetched in terms of the, what they're trying to play on. It's actually hurting consumers, but it probably is going to increase claims cost. But I think the reality is that historically, there's been a lot of litigation that hasn't been. Litigated correctly because the companies that didn't have the capital or didn't even know they had the asset and didn't have the bandwidth or understanding to litigate. And you know, so this is not a and in fact the, w- the other way to look at it is well the insurers have just been having you know having a day out on on, on writing a bunch of insurance that was never was never being litigated or, or litigated against because there wasn't a market to fund that you know and so and now and effectively now. What is happening is that you have another business players in the market that can, have, can actually underwrite risk potentially better than the insurer or at least on par, you know. So I think there's another way to look at it, which is if I was an insurer, I would look for ways to hedge my risk, you know, and, 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 and can, can the insurers use funders in a way to hedge the claims cost? You know, so I think there's different ways to look at it, but um, I think, like, like I said before, I mean, there's there's probably bigger risks in in, in to, to Burford than, than than worrying about the insurers, and um, and let's not let's not forget that the the funders are not here to increase to in, increase unwillingly increase increase the cost of um, of anything that they're they're funding cases that have legal merit, you know, they're, they're putting them, they're, they're taking binary risk to fund these assets. You know, so they're not, they're not kind of willingly going after any, any type of case here. Um, they're allocating capital directly where they think there's some justice to be, to be earned, you know? So, um, but yeah, I think there's, there's probably bigger risks here than, 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 worrying about insurers and namely, like, show me the cash flow, right?